2: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Fiction. Science Fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. thriller.
3: 106.5
2: FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And one hundred five oh
3: AM
4: Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, the biggest mystery of them all. we got Mr. <laughs> David North Martino. <laughs> I'm the biggest mystery. Yeah. Yes. yeah. The biggest mystery in 2024. <laughs> A conundrum. Yeah, well, oh, oh, I can't get Don't you know that to swear on on air? <laughs> yeah. Better than that. So, do you want to get fined. Yeah, you don't get fined. Yeah. We'll pass that on to uh, someone, not us. (laughs) It wasn't me. Okay, listen. So today we've got um, a writer, of course, and we are covering a book that is uh, due to be out in April, and it's called The Last Magdalene, and it's book one of the Magdalene Chronicles. And the author is with us. That's Donna D. Conrad. So thank you for being here, Donna.
5: It's my pleasure. Thank you, Alan and David, for to be
4: on the show. Well, hopefully you say that at the end. Not, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. This is, a, this is a touchy subject, you know, and and um, I know it's historical fiction, but in this time and day, you know, there's so much going on in the political scene, especially in America, but all over, and uh, religion and, and all that stuff. Why did you decide to write something like this in this particular time frame, because aren't you a little worried about a little bit of pushback or controversy?
5: That That's probably exactly why I wrote it. It's that in the time when the country is so divided, the world is so divided, and people are saying it's us against them. And if I'm right, you have to be wrong. I feel it's a good time to put an alternative narrative out about something that is important. And the book is mainly about the place of women in history, which is my passion. What have women been written out of? How have they been marginalized and sidelined on major historical events? And one of the major historical events was the adoption of Christianity into the Roman Empire. And it changed the Western world. And some people say it changed the entire world. So let's go back through the myths and the legends and the miasma that surrounds that period and talk about and explore what people actually lived like what they thought what they did so I think it's a great time
4: yeah well I, I guess it's just um, how much research goes into it because you do call it a historical fiction right and uh, and that so there's fictional parts and there's real history and stuff how do you decide um, which is which and what history you're using and and how you research it and all that. Kind of talk about the background of it.
5: Yes, so it is historical, as you say, and fiction, which my approach is to delve into the time, to everything that is written about um, the place, the politics, the religion, the interaction between peoples. And to do that, there's not a whole lot written about Judea at this time that is not from biblical sources because Judea was a bit of a backwater. It was at the, the bottom of the Silk Road. And so it was a, uh, a spot that people knew about, but it didn't mean very much except for some important items they had, such as balsam, uh, which was a huge trade asset. So to find and admit nothing really to the Roman Empire, they took over Syria and then uh, Judea and Galilee and that whole area kind of came with it. But to uh, one of the best sources I found was Egyptian sources because they were the closest um, advanced civilization to Judea and to Galilee, uh, to this area. And so they had a lot of trade commerce. They also had um, Cleopatra, the famed Cleopatra, also hired mercenaries, mainly from Galilee, and paid them three times the going rate because they were so tough. They, they were the best fighters in the area. And so there's a lot written about the exchange between Egypt, especially Alexandria, and the Ptolemies, and the last Ptolemy, Cleopatra, and the post Ptolemaic Alexandria. So those sources I found to be more historically reliable. And then, of course, we have the the Jewish historian Josephus, who came along a bit after that. His work has been edited and altered, much like the New Testament has been, to move a narrative in a certain direction. But he still is the closest person we have to the rebellions against Rome. In Judea, that mostly came out of Galilee.
4: When I write history, I, I'm only going back a hundred years, like when I do things. Um, so I'm not quite like this. So you know, because I can find pictures and letters, and you can find all sorts of information, and even go through newspapers and find out some other sources. And not only about the people, but how they lived, where they lived, what was going on in that community, how it felt, uh, how people worked, and House and what kind of things they had in their house. like You can find all those things out easily 100 years ago. But how do you find that out about in Mary's time? What did she do every day? What, what kind of life would someone like Mary have?
5: For that, I, I went to, again, other sources outside of Judea and how other women of noble or high birth were treated. And there's a lot written about the last Hasmonean queen uh, which was the queen of a united well no it still wasn't united Israel but um, the Maccabees fought out fought off and kicked out the Greeks and the Hasmoneans took over and their last queen was Alexandria Salome and there's a lot written about her palace how she lived what she did what she would wear and granted it's um, close to 60 years before. Mary Bethany's time, but back then things didn't change all that rapidly, uh, you know, like now you, you blink your eye and you're behind the times.
4: <laughs> yeah.
5: Back then, I mean, you still walked from place to place. If you had a donkey, it could pull a cart for you. That didn't change, so we have a lot of that, and then also the entire Mediterranean basin had a certain a certain feel to it, so the foods they ate, Um, the clothes they wore, the the weather, all of these things can be interpolated. So you go to a lot of different sources, and then you take what... So I took what the Alexandrians thought of the Hebrews, and I took what the Greeks thought of the Hebrews, I took what the Persians thought of them, and I took uh, various writings from the Torah about that time, and then oral traditions, and you just... You put them all together like a jigsaw puzzle. And then in my mind, I get an idea of what life most likely was like.
4: Right. They didn't have Vogue magazine, so they didn't change their fashion quickly.
5: Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And and we do have remnants. A lot of my archaeological evidence came from Biblical Archaeology magazine and from other sources where the, the archaeological digs throughout the Holy Land are are spectacular, and and what they find, they uh, they uncover the Pool of Siloam, which figures largely in the New Testament and in my book, because I placed the Temple of Ashara next to the Pool of Siloam, and they've uncovered it, and they've done renderings of what it might have looked like. And I, before I saw the renderings, I thought, okay, it's a little pool with a fountain in it. It was massive. It was the main water source for the south-southern uh, um portion of of jerusalem and the renderings are beautiful
4: let's start out with mary so who was mary and and what what do you know about her that you can tell us
5: for her we only have the gospels we only have christian literature about her because as in a lot of history women aren't even named we know all the sons We know all the fathers. Sometimes we know the wives' names, but not often, and rarely the daughters' names. So women were kind of written out of history from the beginning because they were never in history. Let's put it that way. (laughs) They didn't need to be written out. But we know that there are so many Marys in the New Testament, especially in the three synoptic Gospels and the book of John. So the question is, why so many Marys? And were they related you know, why was that such a popular name? So that that is a whole nother topic. But there are three Marys that I feel are probably one in the same. And um, that would be Mary of Bethany, who was the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And I have them as half-sister and half-brother in this book. And then there is Mary the Magdalene. And that's a big difference, um, between Mary of Magdala and there was no town at that time called Magdala. So the, the actual, the article that's used to describe her is either Miriam the Magdalene or Miriam Magdalene. And it was never Mary of Magdala, but that again is part of the rewriting of stories to try to place her. And, um, the third is one, and this is where it gets really controversial <laughs> in my book, but the third is the supposed sinner that washed Jesus' feet with her hair, with her tears and dried them with her hair. And because of the placement in the story in the synoptic gospels, I'm saying that also was Miriam the Magdalene or Miriam of Bethany. So the only way we know about her is through the Gospels. Interesting facts about that is that she is named first among all the women who followed Jesus, whose name would have been Yeshua in those days. And to be named first in front of his mother, in front of everybody else, means she had a place of prominence. And that prominence is the basis of this book, That she is a woman of of passion, of courage, of independence, of intelligence, and of, of love, and understanding unconditional love, and that she stood beside Yeshua, wasn't always falling at his feet. I think I went off subject there.
4: <laughs> no, no. I was going to say, I think it also means her stepmother, she probably didn't like her. If she was <laughs> I mean, I'm just, just saying. Just I,
5: saying. Marian Nazareth was like, wait a minute, he's my boy. I should be next.
4: <laughs> now, now, you also make her a priestess
5: of um, within the Temple of Ashara. Yes. that, Yeah, that is the, the somewhat fictional part of this. Because there is no proof one way or another <clears throat> about the actual presence of goddess worship. However, there have been small statues to a female goddess that have been uncovered in second period, uh, second temple period in, um, archaeological digs. And they're small statues and they have grooves in them from as if thumbs had been rubbed over them over and over and over again. And if you look at the Mediterranean basin itself and further to the east, what we would now consider the Middle East, there was always the acceptance of a loving goddess that cared for women, a goddess of fertility, of um, abundance, of caring. So I started the whole process of incorporating the worship of Ashara, with one simple question. Why in the Old Testament are the judges and the priests and the kings always telling people, making proscriptions against the worship of Ashara? I think if you guys are parents or have had parents, you don't tell somebody, don't do something if they're not doing it. Somebody was worshiping Ashara, and that part of... A a woman's relationship to divinity, I think, is very sacred, and I think it is gender-specific. And there's a part in the book where I say when babes are hard to birth, it's a priestess a woman calls, not a priest. And it's that kind of connection to, to wise women, to healers, to midwives, to a woman who is directly connected to the female aspect of divinity. And I have it in the book, and I believe it could have been that it's kind of been below the surface, kind of a don't ask, don't tell, and it is the um, a house for women and orphans. And so they kind of go under this guise, and the, the priests kind of leave them alone. But in the book, that all blows up. And as I say, I mean, this is the time after... The um, temple is destroyed in 60. Jerusalem was still standing, but we find no more archaeological evidence of a female deity. So I'm marking that as the time that Rome, as in that area the ultimate patriarchy, came in and gave the priesthood kind of the backing to eradicate the last vestiges of goddess worship. Not that I thought this out at all. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Yeah. <laughs> don't ask, don't tell. Bill Clinton was running it back then? or
5: ah, Not much has changed in 2000 years,
4: <laughs> other than
5: the Internet and airplanes, you know, wax paper.
4: <laughs> yeah, but none of that really changes life, right? I mean, we're still. So when you sat down and you were going to do this book and eventually a series, so you're doing book one here, did you have something in your mind that you wanted To get across to people, was there like a subtext that you were basing the story on? Was there a meaning, some approach that you wanted to take in order to tell this story? Or was it just do it as you go?
5: The subtext throughout is reclaiming the Magdalene's place in history. But that's in all my books. I mean, the next series is going to be about another woman who has been marginalized. In my mind was... Forming a character who faced incredible obstacles and societal not only disregard, but scorn and still maintained her integrity, her identity, her her ability to love and to be inclusive as opposed to exclusive. And I put all of that, which I think women right now are having a hard time with, again, and to say, no, we're not going to become hateful and deceitful and exclusive. We're going to maintain with our inner knowing of being caring, of being nurturing, of being life-giving, of being inclusive. And I put all of that into Miriam and the other priestesses and the other women around her to show that these women had an incredibly difficult life that was made more difficult by the times by the Roman Empire coming in and imposing values that was foreign to the Hebrew culture and needing to negotiate that was still keeping their own sense of integrity.
4: So do you have the four books already planned out in your mind where you're going to go for the the other three books in this series? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you do. So you kind of already know the beginning middle and end sort of thing. You just got to get it all out.
5: Well, what I always do i write the beginning, the opening scene and the ending scene. So I know where everybody's starting and everybody knows where they're starting. And I know where everybody's going to end and and that so that it in the middle everyone's actions and their arc and their internal journey, their external journey has to make sense and get them to that place where they're going to end up. So for all the books, yes, I know how they start and how they end. <laughs> how, how are you going
4: to keep track of uh, continuity during the series? Uh, do you have um, a series Bible, so to
5: speak, or do <laughs> you use some other tools, systems? <laughs> do. I like to say that I'm definitely a pantser. I I do all my research. I set it aside, and then I just go with it. However, I do have spreadsheets, so I'm thinking I'm maybe a crossbreed here, Um, but I put (laughs) in all of the historical dates that can be proven and the characters that are involved in those dates, and then I fill in what I want to happen in a realistic timeline in different colors, but yes, I definitely have character sketches. I, I know who they are. I write out a description and I'm in the middle of, of working with the narrator, uh, to do the audio book. And the first thing she asked for was character sketches, you know, their height, their weight. How do they walk into a room? And I thought, boy, if I had done this at the beginning, it would have been so much easier. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, What's the one thing they'd never compromise on? So for other writers, I mean, just do this. What Figure out what they won't compromise on. You know, How do they walk into a room? What do they think is their best quality? And what do they want nobody else to know about them?
4: When you're doing these characters and you're putting them together, and now you're trying to get them narrated, so you're going through a lot more details, what kind of relationship, I should say, do you have? With your characters, like how do you see them or feel them and and work them?
5: I hear them. And when I sit down to write, I it's almost sometimes like I'm taking dictation from them. And uh, Chris Humphreys, who another Canadian, wonderful writer. And uh, he says that he in the first draft, he lets them do whatever the heck they want to do. And then he reins them in. I don't let them go too crazy. But I let them tell me the story. Does that make sense? So I hear them. I also feel them. A lot of reviews have been coming in how you get the feeling of being in Judea. And that's because I hear them and I kind of feel what they're feeling in in a way as far as it's very, um, sensual, my connection with them.
4: Well, have any of your characters threatened to take the plot off the rails even though you're trying to rail them in.
5: <laughs> okay, so now you're talking about Herod Antipas who always wants to derail everybody. Yes. <laughs> no, they do. And uh they just want to go in some other direction and it's like I oh, okay, let's go there for a while and see if it works. So I'm I negotiate a lot with my characters. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I will let them go off off the rails sometimes. A, a great example in there I have Miriam saying at one point that during my life, I have known love and tenderness. I've also known violation and danger. And that was in like one of the final drafts. And there was no violation in the story of her. And I went, why would she have said that so early on? So I had to go back and look at what could have happened in her life that she would have considered a violation. So I guess that's her going off and wanting something told about her life that kind of went right over my die job at the beginning.
4: Yeah, but you know, the, the important question is, do these voices tell you to drive places and do certain things that you don't want to do?
5: Did you say drive places? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i been talking to Wendy Hawkins.
2: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast.
3: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
5: I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> That's
4: right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, it's just, I just wonder, you know, if you wake up with a shovel by your bed or something and, you know. Well, it'd be scary if were. I woke
5: up with a hammer and nails and a wooden cross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think my husband would say, okay, I wasn't that bad. Back up. Yeah. No, yeah, it, it doesn't get that way, but I do get to a point sometimes where, I'm so far into their story that it makes it I have to come back out a bit to function in this fast paced technological world that we're in. And so I do isolate myself when I'm writing. I usually play music that goes with the story. For the last Magdalene, I wrote it entirely to Peter Gabriel's Passion CD. And um, then when I'm done writing, I do need to disengage with them and it's not because they want me to do things. It's like, okay, wait a minute, I'm here and there are electric lights and there are telephones and there are computers. And so there there needs to be a separation before I don't I just go running out into the world. Well it might be interesting to do yeah. that. Okay.
4: Well you fit right in, you know
5: <laughs> Don't get Wendy and me in the car together.
4: <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, you know, go to the supermarket, and it'll just be like, oh, <laughs> you'll fit right in. Okay, so it sounds very personal to you. It sounds like you're very involved, and the, you, you, in a way, you're experiencing the characters. You're kind of going through all the details, and you kind of have a, a focus. For the whole time that you're putting together this book, to the very end, and now that it's finished, how, how has this whole experience changed you?
5: Well, it's, it's changed me as a writer and that it has given me far more confidence to explore the depth of the characters. It's changed me as a person, and that I am far more willing to stand up for what I believe, and for having a voice myself. And that's in my first book, House of the Men Surviving the 60s. I wrote it because I realized, as a teenager in the 60s, I had no voice, and that was my mission, was to give women throughout history a voice, tell their story, let them finally have center stage. And I realized I didn't have that. So writing Miriam's story was courageous for me, but it also has helped me be able to, to claim my meaning, my themes in the book. And what I said earlier, yes, I'm concerned about backlash. It's a little bit crazy out there. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell a story that I feel will resonate with a lot of people in a positive way to help people come together and to claim their personal power.
4: Right. Well, and not to worry, we we give Dave's phone number and address out for everybody that context is about Thank
5: you, you so much.
4: Yes, that's right.
5: It, you're gonna take one for the writing team.
4: <laughs> that's right. That's what happens. Al <laughs> yeah, sends everybody to me. Yeah, we just say they live there and he's got picketers outside all the time. Yeah, people. right now.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Picketing Al. Yeah.
5: <laughs> Part of what I did when I wrote this book, though, is I wanted to be respectful of people's feelings and beliefs. And I've treated everyone in the book with kind consideration and um, not challenging anyone or anyone's beliefs, but putting questions out there. Let's explore what it could have really been like.
4: Oh, Hopefully that doesn't, you know, cause any trouble for you, but I wouldn't be confident in thinking that there will be no backlash, even if you're respectful, you know what I mean, in today's climate.
5: I agree with you 100%. <laughs> well,
4: it's unfortunate because, you know, they, you know, people can't exchange ideas as easily these days and kind of talk about things because it really should make no difference what you believe or your neighbor believes or anything like that, as long as you're all respectful and humans and, you know what I mean, and living in the same country. It shouldn't really matter. You should be able to discuss things and talk about things. That's kind of the pleasure of being able to think, Right.
5: I, I agree. And it's, as I say, somebody doesn't need to be wrong for me to be right. So we can both have completely different ideas and neither of us be wrong. We can just agree to disagree. This is your firmly held belief. And I respect that. It's not mine, but it is. And and that is OK to me. That is one of the hallmarks of a society of civilization where people can be different And that I think we go back to, I think it's John Nash, his, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, someone can call me on it, the theory (laughs) of equilibrium or that where it is not only what is good for the individual, but what is good for the group that advances any type of project, any type of um, collaboration. If everybody's just in it for themselves, this is my belief and you're all wrong, the, the society as a whole cannot move forward.
4: Right. I mean that's, you know, we're in a free place to be free. So what do you what do you what are you hoping when when someone picks up the book and reads it, takes it home, reads it, and all that, get through it? What do you hope that they take away from the book?
5: I hope they take away a sense that there is more to the story and the people and the events that surrounded um, the crucifixion crucifixion of Yeshua bar Joseph and the subsequent religion that sprang from his teachings, that these were real people. They've been mythified. They're beyond human. They, you know, I, I mean, the prime characters. And to say, wow, a lot went into what happened at that time, and I hadn't thought about it before. These are real human, flesh and blood people that needed to deal with everyday events and one of them, the leading woman, who's mentioned in every one of the of the, the synoptic gospels and the book of John, all of a sudden just disappears. We don't hear about her anymore until the fifth century, when all of a sudden she's called a, a prostitute and a, all the and a whore and all these things. And wait a minute, she was really important there for a long time, huh? Maybe this is why. Maybe this is her story. That's what I hope it gets people thinking, and coming to their own conclusions.
4: It's kind of like you're kind of like being Paul Harvey. Remember that now for the rest of the story?
5: Yes. <laughs> do you remember that? That's, a, that's
4: dating myself, okay, but I, you know.
5: I'm back now there with you. The I'm back there with you, Alan.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Uh, um, so how, how long does it take you to do one of these? How long did it take you to do book one?
5: Geological ages. <laughs> It seems like forever, but I would say the research is getting easier, but now I've moved to Alexandria, which is where book two is, and so it's digging into their culture, the way they did things, their money exchanges, their trade routes, their way of, of dress, their hierarchies. And once that research is done, for the Magdalene, the research itself took about 18 months, and the character sketches, and that, and the writing took about another eight months, and, and then we got into edits. <laughs> and then we got into my editor getting a hold of it and saying, okay, this doesn't make sense here and there. So it went through probably three complete rewrites, which probably took close to a year and a half. So Yeah, it's a big process. It's a big process, and then it is sending it out. I worked really closely with a Hebraic scholar um, from Haifa University to make sure I got the Hebraic laws and customs correct. And then I worked with a an Egyptologist who helped me with um, kind of deciphering and and the texts that came from Egypt because I do not read Coptic or Egyptian you know no yeah it's on my list (laughs) after this four book series and the next four book series I might get to Coptic but I doubt it (laughs) (laughs) so I'm hoping though that this next one um I have said that I'm going to put out a book every April and the book releases are always going to be between Easter and Passover because it, it 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 spans both religions and um so I better write fast. <laughs> the yeah, first, to work. Yeah, at least the first half of the book is, is finished. It's called The Lost and the Holy and takes place in Alexandria. And luckily, it's only about a five-year period. It's uh, it's good, but it's going to continue her Miriam's story in exile. Because as we all know, Rome was horrific. And anyone who said Rome was wrong about anything uh, was hunted down and and killed. And if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were crucified. And so she needed to go into exile.
4: In the, in the long story short, what do you think happened to her? Like where did she, where did she end up?
5: To me, I think she ended up in southern Gaul. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which is now southern France around the Languedoc area and uh, Provence in that area. And it, we have historically, we know that Herod Antipas was exiled to Lyon. And in, I think, 43, 42, 43 um, current era. And it, Gaul was kind of a place where Rome sent people they didn't want to have to deal with. And there was a huge expatriate community of Hebrews in and around the town of Narbonne and all throughout Gaul. And the the Visigoths and the, the other people living in that area were very open to, yeah, come on in, behave yourselves. Have a good time. You know, set up commerce. So I think most of the evidence I've looked at would place her there. And there's a a lot of mm, legends about her becoming a great teacher and a healer and being very renowned in the area of Provence. So I'm going, I'm taking her there. Taking
4: her there. So uh, why do you think she got such a reputation of being like a whore prostitute and, and bad, bad name calling and stuff? Where, where did that come from?
5: That, that goes into the whole thing of, of the patriarchy and men in power needing to defame women. And so one of the favorite ways of defaming women is calling them whores. You know, they're a loose woman. They entice men to do things that men would never think of doing on their own. Wink, nod. Um, (laughs) She she was a powerful woman. I think she was co-equal with Jesus. And I believe that when the church was being founded, uh, the Catholic church, the universal church was being founded on this man's teachings, They wanted the men in power wanted to remain in power. And it was fine if women had little church groups and things like that, but they were not going to rule. And I believe this goes back to Hellenistic times, which was the Greek influence that the Romans took over, where women were denigrated. And why were they? Let's think about that for a minute. If women were given their freedom and women could go out and do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted to how could any man ever be sure a child was his pregnant pause <laughs> yeah
4: well yeah. there you go well, there you go
5: so there you go so you have to start locking your women away in the hebrew tradition bloodlines are carried by the women because you you can, you only can be sure most times who the mother is especially at this time So bloodlines, when they started being traced from the men, all of a sudden men had to start had to start locking up their women. And if a woman expressed any kind of of sensuality, of passion, of expressing that sexual nature that men were free to do, all of a sudden she had to be put down and set aside and cast away because she wasn't following the rules to breed a bloodline from the man and that is my story. I'm sticking to it. I, I believe that it all comes down to that. And and so you defame a woman by calling her, you know, a whore. I have a whole not blog, but a little talk. I'm I'm doing weaving. I'm, I'm weaving women's tales on Wednesdays. I'm doing these little um, videos. And one of them is why women who want to express their sexuality are called names and put down. And yet, men are honored, and told, "Yeah, he's a real man. She's a real whore." And it—it's a dichotomy that I think needs to be addressed. Why should it be different?
4: Yeah, and it's something. Uh, well, I mean, Madonna's been addressing it for what fifty years, and it's still a negative. Do you know what I mean? It's still a hard fight.
5: It—it it is. Uh, yes, it is. And so, in this—in this book, in the whole series. I am putting forth a strong, intelligent, passionate, sensual woman who's not afraid of being not only sexual but sensual and being compassionate and passionate. And I hope women can in some way claim that in themselves when they're reading about her. And I feel if enough women are able to claim that, then maybe we can start moving towards changing society. It's going to be slow. This was what the sexual revolution in the sixties was about. I was fighting back then for women's rights. And the women's rights were not just to vote and to, to, to be able to do everything men do. It was a sexual revolution to say women should have the same sexual rights as men have.
4: Yeah. You can burn your bra if you want to.
5: I, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever doubt it? (laughs)
4: <laughs> no, I, I kind
2: of
5: got that feeling. Yeah, but, you know. was just, what was it I said? Huh. Uh, yes, yeah, so that, that that type of inspiration to claim yourself, whether it's a man or a woman, I don't care what gender it is identified with, but to claim yourself in its entirety is important to me. And that's a message I would like to get out into the world. And people can call names and cast dispersions, which is happening. And to me, that's their problem, not mine. Unless it turns right, physical and, and violent, then I take that as my problem, and I try not to put up with it. But
4: Send them, today. <laughs>
5: send them to Dave. Uh, David, afterwards, just you put your address. I'll set them up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's a matter of what people say about someone else, to me, has always reflected more on them than on the person they're saying it about.
4: Well, it's strange. You know, I, I know I don't do many interviews. When I was on a show a while back, a few years ago, and I know they were talking about uh, Gloria Steinem, mm. and they were asking me what I thought about her being working for the CIA and, and that the whole woman's movement was all a lot. And I thought, Jesus, what do you want me to say? <laughs> um, you know, like, but they they were in, in, in essence, what they were doing is they were trying to slam Gloria Steinem.
5: Oh, absolutely. And, I, and it's still going on today. I mean, we, I think we could get a little political. I think we're moving that way. But the assault on women's rights right now is horrific. And it's, it's medieval. I will say that it is just, it is just something that, to say someone else has control over someone else's body is is abominable. I mean, I don't yeah. even think we yeah, should have the, the right to, to control what another person thinks, let alone what they do with their body, as long as it's not injuring other people. I mean, somebody could do with their body and go out and start beating up a bunch of liberal freaks or people who try to rewrite the New Testament, and that wouldn't be right. <laughs> I would like them... Not to be able to do that, but if they're doing no harm, I'll yeah. stop there.
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leave Dave alone. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, well, listen. So how, how do people find you and readers and fans and all that? Of course, do you have like a website? Do you do social media? Where, where do people come send their bad emails to?
5: <laughs> Please, all <laughs> bad emails. Uh, it's really tough. My website is DonnaConrad.com. So I I got my name. Is that amazing? <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And, that's uh oh. And <laughs> and emails. Yeah, Donna at DonnaConrad dot com and Facebook I think it's I think it's Donna Conrad. <laughs> that Well there you go. There we go. It's easy and then soon I'm putting a private Facebook group that's going to be called the Magdalene Chronicles. And inside of that group we're gonna talk about um these issues, women's issues, men's issues. Uh, individuality and freedom inside of that group in a little more open manner. So I hope as soon as that's up, people will hop on and engage in a conversation.
4: Well, fantastic. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to put all that up on our website, and uh, along with your book, and we're glad you're here. Now, the book is called The Last Magdalene, and it's book one of the Magdalene Chronicles. And uh, our guest has been the author of that book, Donna D. Conrad. So thank you for being on the show.
5: It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And, and thanks, David, for taking all those fanatics on for me. I appreciate
2: it. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> thanks, <Donna.
5: laughs> Just Go for it.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www..